Just another letter from prison, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel so that it's become known among the whole imperial guard and among everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having been made confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, this will result in my deliverance. And it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in any way, but that by speaking with all boldness, Christ will be exalted now as always in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And I don't know which I prefer. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is necessary for you. Since I'm convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in faith so that I may share abundantly in your boasting in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 53 years ago yesterday, January 16, 1963, Eight prominent clergymen gathered for a Dutch lunch at the Tutwiler Hotel in Birmingham, Alabama. Today, the Tutwiler is a Hampton Inn, but that's somewhat misleading. In 1963, it was the epitome of Southern hospitality. I wasn't there, but in my mind's eye, I see white tablecloths and sterling silver and delicate teacups for the matriarchs who will arrive later that afternoon for tea, and waiters in black tie, black waistcoat, and black skin. And so these eight clergymen gather around a large white eight-top and start talking about the hot issue of the day in Birmingham. All these outsiders from across the United States who are arriving in Birmingham to protest segregation. George Wallace had just given his inaugural address as governor of Alabama two days before this ministerial lunch, and he'd outlined the single plank of his political platform, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. George Wallace had been governor of Alabama for two days, but Jim Crow had been king in Birmingham for almost 100 years, ever since Appomattox. White people and black people did not walk down the street together or eat lunch together in public or in private. They did not share communion at their churches on Sunday morning. And here is the ultimate irony. At the courthouse in Birmingham, there were two Bibles, one for black people's oaths and one for white people's oaths. Older black women were addressed as auntie, older black men as uncle. Younger black men were called John or boy, or nigger, never sir or mister. One black mother had a new baby son, 
and she called her insurance agent to tell him about her new arrival, and he asked her, what's his name? And she said, his name is Mr. And the agent said, why would you call your son Mr.? She said, sir, my baby's going to grow up one day and become a man, and I want everyone to call him Mr. So all these outsiders from all over the United States, including a preacher from Atlanta named Martin Luther King Jr., are coming to Birmingham to protest segregation, this Jim Crow state of affairs. And these eight clergymen get together for lunch at the Tutwiler. Two Episcopalians, two Methodists, a Baptist, a Presbyterian, a Roman Catholic, and a Jew. They are the most prominent clergymen in Birmingham. Five of the eight, five are bishops. And the two parish pastors preach to tall steeple Baptist and Presbyterian congregation. One was educated at Emory and two at Princeton. They're sleek, smart, sophisticated, and successful. They are almost sexy. They're the best. They consider themselves enlightened and liberal, or maybe middle of the road. They're not Ku Klux Klan kinds of guys. They disagree with George Wallace, integration never, and they disagree with Martin Luther King, integration now. And so after lunch at the Tutwiler, they get together and slap this shoddy 428-page letter together for publication in the two Birmingham newspapers, and their message can be summed up in one word. Someday. Or maybe two words. Not now. Or two other words. Be patient. What these moderate ministers wanted to say is that desegregation is a good thing, but not yet. Three months later on Good Friday, Good Friday, 1963, Martin Luther King is arrested. So Bull Connor's police hook his pants by the seat and escort him to the Birmingham City Jail where he is thrown into a nine-foot by six-foot cell with a sink, a mirror, a toilet, and a cot, but no mattress. And with nothing else to do, Dr. King writes a response to this letter from these eight moderate clergy persons. And if the letter from the ministers can be summed up with one terse praise, not yet... Dr. King's much longer response can be summed up in one word, now. Or in his three-word elaboration, all now here. All now and here. And letter from Birmingham City Jail was so elegant and so eloquent and so timely that ever since many American Christians consider it the 67th book of the Bible. And I hope you notice the things that Martin's letter to those eight clergymen and Paul's letter to his friends in Philippi have in common. They're both addressed to very specific, very individual address addressees, aren't they? We forget that. You know, Philippians is our Bible, literally, it's our scripture. For us, the words in Philippians are the ipsissima of verba of God, God's self, their holy writ. But Paul would have been shocked to discover 
that we were reading his little thank you note to his friends from Christian pulpits across the world every Sunday. It was just a thank you note. He mentions his friends, Epaphroditus, Syntyche, Euodia, by name, my buddies. Same thing with Dr. King's letter from Birmingham City Jail, written to eight prominent Birmingham clergymen. And ever since, we've been eavesdropping on a conversation that was not intended for us. And his letter made these clergymen famous, of course. It was the single thing they were known for for the rest of their lives. Years later, after the letter became prominent, someone asked one of these eight clergymen, Dr. Harmon, did you ever meet Dr. Martin Luther King? And Dr. Harmon said, no, all he ever did was write me a letter. Specific recipients, but universal truth. I think there's something we can learn about the nature of truth from these two letters, Philippians and Birmingham. Huge, global, comprehensive, universal truth arises most profoundly from specific, intimate conversations. A recent college graduate wanted to find a way to express his extravagant journalistic gifts, so he brought this, bought this tiny newspaper in a small New England town And he instantly began to write about the ordinary happenings of his pedestrian neighbors, but he wrote about them with such perceptiveness and such affection that the town folk couldn't wait for the arrival of the newspaper on their porch the next morning. And one man said to this newspaper editor, Henry, your stories are so local, they're universal. Yes. You know what I'm, Garrison Keillor, right? Steve Hartman on the road. Remember Charles Kuralt? I bet you come to the 1030 worship service so you can stay home and watch Charles Osgood on Sunday morning, right? So local, they're universal. When God wants to get our attention, God says, Dear Bill, dear Katie, dear Cindy, it's a handwritten note. Your address is on the envelope. Somebody licked the stamp. Your local postmaster canceled it and delivered it to your mailbox. Dear Bill, dear Katie, dear Cindy. It's never dear occupant. God's communications are not junk mail. They're handwritten to us. And it's so local, it's universal. It's a cliche because it's true, yes? God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. So that's what Paul and Martin have in common, their addressees. Also, they both had a personal secretary, right? Did you notice how the letter to the church at Philippi begins? Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ to the saints at Philippi. So this is what happened, right? Paul dictated that letter, but Timothy transcribed it. Personal secretary. And as for Martin, did you ever wonder how we ever came to read this letter written from a nine-by-six-foot jail, jail cell with a sink, a toilet, a mirror, and a cot but no mattress? Dr. King snuck out that letter on scraps of toilet paper and in the margins of newspapers in the briefcases of his lawyers who then smuggled those communications to the office's of the Southern Christian Leadership Conferences in Atlanta, 
where an SCLC secretary named Winnie Pearl Mackey hammered out those words on her IBM electric typewriter, hoping not only that she could interpret the rough scrawl of a prison inmate writing on a cot with no mattress, but also hoping that she could get these scraps of toilet paper and old newspapers in the right order. And she would type out those words to the wee small hours of the morning, and when she fell asleep and her forehead hit the keyboard, her boss, the executive director of the SCLC, Wyatt T. Walker, would lift her up and carry her over to the couch and begin banging it out himself, this masterpiece. Willie Pearl Mackey. Is that a name from a far-fetched novel or what? At the bottom of the original transcription of Letter from Birmingham Jail, it reads MLK, capital letters, MLK, colon, WM, lowercase, Willie Pearl Mackey. Years later, when this letter helped to change America, Willie Pearl Mackey would never forgive herself for throwing away those scraps of toilet paper and old newspapers. If she'd saved them, we'd put them behind bulletproof glass in Washington with the Constitution and the Declaration. So these specific addressees, personal secretaries, one more thing I want to point out before I quit. I want to, would you to notice this about these epistolarians, Martin and Paul. They both loved life so deeply, so passionately. They squeezed all the richness and meaning of life that they could, but they never grasped it too tightly. For to me, write St. Paul to his favorite congregation at Philippi, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I don't know if my imprisonment will end in freedom or in execution, but it does not matter. I win both ways. If I live, I win because I get to continue to work with the likes of you, my friends. And if I die, I get to be with Christ. If I win, if I live, I win. And if I die, I win. So there's Paul, a powerless prisoner, pleading for the pity of a princeling in the palace and the palatine. And he notices that even in these desperate circumstances, there is purpose, power, and presence to his life. And that even a jail cell advances the cause of Christ, or in Martin's case, the cause of the civil rights movement. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I live, I win. And if I die, I win. Heads, I win. Tails, I win. Red, I win. Black, I win. Odd, I win. Even, I win. Lucky sevens or snake eyes, I win. My zip code as my Powerball number, I win. My telephone number as my Powerball entry, I win. Whatever happens, I win the lottery. That's how you live life, to squeeze all the richness out of it that you can, but never to grasp it too tightly. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain, writes St. Paul. Or as Dr. King put it, I don't know what's going to happen now. 
We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I'm happy tonight. I'm not fearing anyone because mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. That was on April 3, 1968. Twelve hours later, he would be dead. Did you know that in 1979, 16 years after Dr. King wrote this letter, 1979, the city of Birmingham elected a black man as its mayor and then re-elected him four more times. 16 years from Jim Crow to black mayor. My imprisonment advances the cause of Christ. One last little reminder of good news. Dr. King was not alone in his brave witness to social justice. He was not even the first. Right? My heart broke when I found out that Natalie Cole died on New Year's Day at the young age of 65. Her father, of course, was the famous singer Nat King Cole. But what I didn't know was that her mother was also a minor star in her own right. Her mother was Maria, and Maria sang with Duke Ellington. In 1948, when Nat King Cole and Maria Cole wanted to purchase a house in the posh Hancock Park neighborhood of Los Angeles, the neighbors heard that a black family was moving in, and they protested. We don't want any undesirables in our neighborhood, they said. And Nat King Cole and Maria Cole just said, well, we don't want any undesirables in our neighborhood either. And if we meet anybody like that, we'll be sure to tell you. That moment was unforgettable. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.